This is the Ask a Death Doula podcast, a platform of free education on how to have the best end-of-life experience possible by knowing how to live your best life now. With experienced hospice, oncology, and wellness nurse, Suzanne B. O'Brien. everyone, and welcome to this edition of Ask a Death Doula. We are live, so thank you so much for being with me. It is November 14th, 2019. Uh, when I do my classes and when I do live events um, and I say the date, it just reminds me how very fast time goes for sure. Other than that, I sort of am in the hope, try to be in the flow. Um, and uh, not get too crazy about the clock and time and not consumed with all that stress, even though that's kind of difficult not to be affected by it. I try and practice presence, that's for sure. But today we are at November 14th. We are at a live Ask a Death Doula. We are doing these weekly lives so that people can come on and ask questions and I just wanted to make sure that we are recording and that we have everyone on, um, on the call. So I just, again, am trying to make sure that we're all set and it looks like everything's fantastic. So we are going to go ahead and get started. And today I always wanna do a bit of teaching. It's really up to you what you want to hear. Um, I feel like I share again, um, the latest information that's happening in the news, but really wanted to develop a platform of digestible education for people and also answer the uh, many questions that come into International Doula Givers Institute from patients, from families, from people in the field that want um, to know, you know certain things and how to do certain things or what, what are we gonna do to solve the crisis before us? So this is gonna be part of that. And I put together a little slide PowerPoint for you. Um, and again, if you're listening to this in our um, Audible podcast, fantastic. You're gonna get everything you need. We also do a visual um, recording of the podcast that you can see on our um, YouTube page and everything is accessible through our website, doulagivers.com. But again, some people like to watch it. A lot of times I'll come on live. Um, sometimes we'll even have wonderful guests on here. So it is really fun to have both available at all times. So today we are going to dive into the future of healthcare and the projections and what we might be looking towards as the answer. Now, if you've been following me, you probably have heard me talk about this several times. I have been doing this almost two decades as far as raising awareness for our elder population and our end of life population and building training programs with end of life doula certification with doula givers and the doula giver specialists. So now more than ever, we need answers to the pitfalls, to the gaps, to what we are seeing out there, which is a crisis. So the future of healthcare, in my opinion, is going to be the non-medical professional. 
and are doulas filling the gap in healthcare? Can they fill the gap in healthcare? And if they can, how can that be done? So we're going to talk about the, the present state of where we are and also maybe a bit of history and then hopefully what we can project for the future as the, the answer to solving the crisis. So the future of healthcare, let's talk about that. The elder care crisis before us, current statistics I'm gonna share with you. Current statistics that are really alarming um, and very few people I think are privy or really understand the magnitude of the elder care, the aging population, the crisis before us with, when I say crisis, it's not that the aging are causing the crisis, they're wonderful people, they're a great population, but we have never before in our history seen a um, aging population like we have now and is projected for decades to come. And we don't have the systems in place in mainstream medical to support that number and what they need. So we're gonna talk about current statistics. We're gonna talk about the projection of stats over the next few decades. We're then gonna talk about mainstream medical, how they cannot handle the need that we're not, we're not set up now to in this country, United States, to have adequate time with patients and in healthcare which is really heartbreaking. Um, it has gotten so fragmented and so um, diminished the amount of time that a practitioner can spend. Um, and a lot of this is education with healthcare. You wanna talk about education. You also wanna make sure that you understand that we are holistic beings. So it's not just a physical process, it is a holistic process that requires time and presence and understanding the other components that somebody might have that are affecting their physical presentation of health. So mainstream medical is not set up now and they're not gonna be set up for the volume of elderly coming through in the next decades to come. We're gonna talk about the reimbursement structure and how that is greatly affecting um, what we are seeing in the present state of the problem. So I really believe that you can look for the source. What is the, what is that link that broke down the system? Where did it break down? And it's actually kind of a recipe of the perfect storm for this, but definitely the reimbursement structure when that was put in place, it changed the game of how we um, give care at the bedside with patients. The ratio of practitioners to patients, current US healthcare system, oh dear, ranks 37 on the World Health Organization, the WHO site. So those are um, the organizations that will rate your country's healthcare system. How in the world, this, I, I, say this, I say this almost on the daily when things come up or you know, and of course, you know, in my world, but just, I think everyone is touched by healthcare. How in the world do we have a country that is, you know, so quote unquote advanced on many things and is ranked 37th in the World Health Organization for good healthcare? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense how we have such a poor healthcare system. The answer, the non-medical professionals will fill the gap 
all the ways end-of-life doulas, doula givers will fill the gap. We'll talk about that non-medical professional. So um, when I first started on this journey in, so I'm a registered nurse by trade, and most of my nursing has been within hospice care and or oncology, which is cancer care. And even when I first began nursing and worked in a medical uh, unit of a hospital, I noticed the elderly and how they were um, you know, definitely set apart from everyone else, treated differently, and also uh, not like a lot of people would ever come to visit the elderly. So on the whole, so there were people that were by themselves, and then the staffing was just not able to accommodate spending time with them. Um, it was really, really, really heartbreaking. So from the very beginning, I was concerned with the gaps in caring for elderly, meaning, you know, when their meals come, they need to be um, opened up and they need to be fed and it, it's a slower process. It's not that they can't, act, you know, eat quickly and there wasn't really the adequate staffing to do that properly. So for me, that's a basic need and it was not okay that, you know, people were not obviously getting their basic needs met and then how do you expect people to get better, but also, you know, they need to be fed, they're hungry. So I've always identified that there was an issue and then I didn't realize how just drastic this issue was until I started to then work with more elderly, get into the elder population, and then of course work in end of life and oncology. So we have gaps across the board all throughout the medical system. And, you know, I would go to the um, heads of my hospitals and my CEOs of my hospices and really just raise the question of what can we do to fix this problem, that we need to do better, that this was something that was just morally unacceptable. You know, I was not pointing fingers at anyone. I was just saying, are, are we aware of what we're doing here and that these people need more and that we have got to... Um, put things in place, that this is not something that is optional. And time after time, I would be, you know, met with, we understand you are absolutely right. There's a problem, but we just can't do more. We're not going to get reimbursed for it. So that reimbursement was always being thrown at me that there's no way to be paid for the extra time needed. Well, you know, I don't buy that. I feel like there's always room uh, to make things happen. But the reimbursement definitely was something that is an Achilles heel to, I guess, everything, that everything is based on that reimbursement structure, which really takes the patient care and time out of the equation. So I was met with great ideas. Yes, you are correct. We need to do something. We just can't do it because we're not going to get paid for it within the mainstream medical system. So, okay. All right. Finally, it dawned on me. Okay, what do we get paid? What do you? What is the? What is the reimbursement? You know, what? What number is that? And I remember with my, with my hospice at the time, it was one hundred and sixty-six dollars a day. And I thought, gosh, keep your one hundred and sixty-six dollars a day. I'll go out and teach all this information for free. I'll go out and just do a platform of free education to help to teach families what they need to know ahead of time and to raise awareness and advanced directives and choosing and just things that would help the journey, which is 100% inevitable. And, and it was amazing. It was met with a great response, um, you know, getting together as community in support of each other. And then it just built into obviously a global outreach and movement. Um, however, 
when in those very early days when I was giving my family caregiver trainings for end of life doula, I was met with people who came up and said, you know, Suzanne, I can do this. I, I can do, I feel like I can be, be an, an end of life doula as a practitioner. And many of them were nurses and social workers and um, people who did alternative therapies. And I thought, my gosh, yes. Okay, so we need to build a program for professional non-medical practitioners that we won't have to be within the system of being reimbursed with being bogged down by most of our time having to document and do a lot of things that are actually not making total sense. It's, you know, it's redundant how much of the documentation is done and the actual presence and bedside time is a fraction. So to build a non-medical profession that I can teach you so well how to care for somebody who's aging, end of life. And is there medical information that you're going to learn in the, in the teachings? For sure. Absolutely. Because it's the same premise of what I would teach a family taking care of their end of life patient on hospice as a hospice nurse. You know, the model of hospice is that the hospice nurse is supposed to come and teach the families how to care for that dying loved one. Well, there's lots of issues surrounding that. Um, and again, I talked about the perfect storm. People don't want to go on hospice. They know that that means death. So there's a big pushback for people actually coming on hospice services. So they don't come on till the very end. In fact, the median average day is 12 to 14 on hospice. Um, the hospice benefits are good six months or less. And as a hospice nurse on there, sometimes if my patient is what you call stable, once a week for one hour, how am I possibly going to teach you how to properly care for this loved one? The second part of this is that, um, you know, the fear of death right now in the United States is the second leading fear. So that fear blocks people from learning. People are paralyzed. There's a lot of factors that are going into why end of life is not going well. And we've kind of laid out a few of them. So you put this combination together and you've got this perfect storm that's creating these really dysfunctional end of life processes. But what can we do to fix what we can control? And I think there's a few things that we can control here. First of all, the fear of death. Um, you know, I've often said, okay, so, and I, absolutely understand that we don't want to you know think about loved ones dying or rush into it or any of that but the fact that it's a hundred percent guaranteed as part of our journey and here's the really important thing that it can go well that it can go much better with certain elements that have been put into place so that is where i go out on a free educational platform to want to share those experiences with end-of-life patients of what the elements that did have it go well, what the elements that did not have it go well, so that you can be as empowered to have the most positive end-of-life for you and your family that we possibly can have. So, I mean, that's a positive thing. And what happens is when we get out there on a platform and then when I'm able to share the many experiences at end-of-life that I've had with families, and I've been with over a thousand families in, in several different cult, in countries and cultures and religions, when I'm able to share from that firsthand account and answer questions and share with you what those were like and really, again, share 
the positive, almost beautiful end of life. Not almost, yes, I've had a few that have been absolutely beautiful. It starts to open up an area um, of possibly not fearing end of life. And most of us haven't seen an end of life experience. So the fear, I believe, really developed and got built up from the unknown. And the fact that we've made so many medical advances in the last hundred years that we forgot to teach our doctors that people die and that it's okay that they die. And it's okay that you're the doctor working with somebody that has an end of life. Because right now we treat them like if their patient dies, they failed, no matter how old that patient is or what disease process they have. We haven't taught them how to support those at the end of life. What can you do? There's so much we can do. What about the language we use at end of life? Losing our battle, um, fighting against, and how medical practitioners might say, I'm sorry, there's no more I can do for you when you get a terminal diagnosis. There's so much we can do for people. It might be the most important time that we take care of people as medical practitioners. So this perfect storm developed and it's time for us to bring back all of the pathways of sharing information for putting things in place that will dramatically make um, for a better end of life as we can. So the non-medical professional is now going to be the future of healthcare and the answer to filling in the gap. Since our system is so fragmented and we cannot fit more time with patients in mainstream medical, with doctors, nurses, aides, they're all completely overwhelmed, stressed out. It's really unfortunate to see this because it's not, it's not healthy for anyone. It's not good for the patient. It's not good for the medical provider. So teaching people in a non-medical capacity, yes, will they have medical information for sure, but they are a non-medical professional and they will be able to supply that time and presence um, and really be the adjunct, that support system to the mainstream medical filling in that major gap is super exciting and that's what's happening. So let's go on our journey about um, how that's going to be. So again, having medical and non-medical professionals working together to care for patients is the answer to the present and future healthcare crisis. So statistics, let's talk about, again, just facts. You've got 78 million baby boomers that target, started turning 65 a few years ago. 78 million, and that's just in the United States. 20% do not have their own children. So there's 20% of them. It's usually the adult child that will step forward to care for an aging parent. Not always, but usually. Um, and 20% don't even have that option. And then by statistically, by 2060, one out of four people will be over 65 years old. We've never before seen an aging population like this, and it's going to continue for decades. The lack of preparation. So again, this goes to, I believe, the perfect storm with the fear of death, with the we don't want to discuss it, with the medical advances that we've made in the last hundred years that are um, allowing us to deny that death is a natural part of our life's journey or a part of it at all. And so the lack of reality to that um, prevents us from doing any 
any thought process, any preparation for it. So 90% of individuals, if you ask them, say that talking about their end of life care is important. 90% will say, yeah, that's important. Okay, but 20, 27% have actually done it. 60% of individuals say that they do not want their families to be burdened by making tough decisions, that this is extremely important to them. Yet 56% have not communicated what they would want for their end of life wishes with their family. So when we don't communicate and we don't choose for ourselves and then communicate those choices, we inevitably will have it fall on our family to try and figure it out. So not only do they have to deal with the awareness that you have a critical or end of life situation, but that they have to try and guess what you would want, what's best. And usually under crisis and stress, we don't always make the best decision. And the other factor here is that families most of the time will not unanimously agree on what the care should be. So now you've got a bunch of family discourse. You've got added stress to the situation. And you're probably, you know, maybe not picking what your loved one would actually want. And that is not your fault. It is something that should have been talked about ahead of time. 82% of individuals say that it's important to put their wishes in writing, yet 23% have actually done it. And only half of the 23% know what they have done with the document. So I'm going to put my family on the hot seat here. Um, so I've been talking, obviously, I've been talking to my parents about this for a long time. And it's very important to know the sensitivity when you're talking to an actual person who is in their elder years because they feel that they are closer to their end of life even though we know that it can happen to anyone at any time statistically we know as we age we get closer to this last phase of our life and so there's a sensitivity sometimes to talking about it at that stage so I've been trying to and talking to my, my folks about that, getting their wishes, knowing their advanced directives, healthcare proxy, all of that. But yeah, there are some questions still not 100% clear. I'd like to go and get um, more specific. And the holidays, they're upon us and it's actually a great time to have a family discussion because your families get together. And so to make sure that you know, people understand um, how important these documents are and that your wishes being shared with one another is so important. It's one of the best gifts you can give each other. So we're going to have at Thanksgiving, I, I often said it's very funny. We said, because my sister has um, mother-in-law on her side of the family, we're like, we're going to do a um, advanced directive <laughs> intervention. <laughs> we're going to lock the doors. Nobody leaves. Nobody is allowed to leave without having their paperwork done, signed, and clear. So we, we laugh about this, um, that we're going to do it like on the Friday, but we're going to do it. So we, the adults in the mid generation um, are all going to bring out their advanced directive healthcare proxy, share it with everybody, make sure that it's crystal clear, share it with the kids and make it like, you know, the advanced directive Tupperware party. Have fun with it, but also be there together so we can ask questions and we're, we're, you know, we're going to rip the Band-Aid off and really have this. So I really suggest for you um, to consider doing things like that, to consider having you know, coffee, tea, 
cookies and getting together for an hour with your family and saying, we're going to, we're going to talk about this. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's like having that sex talk with your kids. It's uncomfortable, but it will save a thousand times of suffering later on. So one of the things that I like is the five wishes document. It also is good in most states because your advanced directive and healthcare proxy needs to be state sensitive. So that's something that I recommend to look into. You can download them on the internet. And also your Department of Health for your state has advanced directives and healthcare proxies. I would pull out those documents. And again, it's one of the greatest gifts that you can give each other. Um, and just the holidays is a time to really talk about that and to get it done. So this bottom, 23% have actually done it and only half of the people know where they are. It's no good. The document is no good unless you know where it is. It's also no good if your healthcare proxy does not know that they are the healthcare proxy or know your wishes. Please make this not something that people have to find when you're in critical condition um, or you know, not be able to find it all. Talk to your family, let them know, and let them ask questions of why you're choosing what you're choosing because that rationale is extremely important for them to be um, able to uphold your wishes even if it's 100% difficult or that they don't fully agree with what you're wishing. More alarming statistics are 65 million informal and family caregivers provide care to someone who is ill, disabled, or aged in the U.S. Um, so this is for, from the Caregiver Alliance 2015. So again, there are so many um, people needed, whether it's in families, whether it's companion care, companion care, which is non-medical uh, companion companies, are a billion with a B dollar industry. So they're people who are filling in the presence, but they don't have training. They don't have expert training. They don't have holistic training. They're not what I would call the professionals like we are gonna have with the doula givers. Um, I could teach a new hospice nurse going, in fact, I have hospice nurses that go through the program and still learn so much from the program. It's, you know, it's well done and it's a holistic model and it's beautiful. So these non-medical professionals are needed. They're in place now, whether they're family caregivers or, you know, again, somebody doing what you call companion care, the numbers are staggering and we want to be able to handle the increase in volume, but also provide really good care. We want really good care. Five, 0.8 to 7 million informer, informal caregivers provide care to a person 65 and over who needs assistance with ADLs. ADLs are activities of daily living. So feeding, bathing, just to be able to get through your day, staggering numbers again. This is just in the United States. 85% of people 65 and over will need assistance at some point. 85% of people 65 years and over will need assistance at some point in some form. So that's practically everyone. The average age of life right now is 80. So this says people over 65. So if you have an average age of life right now in 2000, years, 2019 of 65, you've got so many people that are needing assistance. And where is that assistance going to come from? So because we've never seen an aging population like this before in history, we don't have the means to know how to care for them. 
financially, medically, emotionally, um, and also just everything in their housing, the setups, we're, we're just, we're not there at all. And I've seen so many sad scenarios and suffering and loneliness and all of that. Um, and it's only going to increase. So we need to get things in place now. We need to make sure they're in place for the increased volume coming about. The future of healthcare is non-medical. So here was a projection in 2014 from the National Institute um, of Health. They released a report called Dying in America in which they discussed the future of end-of-life care. And this report declared that there is a need to move towards, number one, person-centered, family-oriented end-of-life care models. Nine out of 10 people say that they wanna be at home at the end of life if they were terminally ill. And we don't have the means to have that happen well right now. So we wanna really focus again on the person holistically in my opinion, and I think that's what they're trying to say. So the patient-centered, the person-centered and family-oriented. You know, when you have somebody who's very sick or dying, the whole family is affected by that. So as a practitioner, you want to not only care for that person, but for their whole family as well. Um, very important. An increase in education and higher standards for advanced care planning. This is one of the key elements to all of this, is the education in the preparation um, for choosing what you would want. Be, get informed. Choose what quality of life is to you. Try and understand what's important to you and be able to make those choices in that advanced directive ahead of time, not only advanced care planning for healthcare, but advanced care planning for aging, what I call aging well um, in the doula giver care consultant training that we have. We have amazing consultants that go out and share this information about how to age well, how to put finances in order, how to plan for A, B, and C, because we don't know what we're going to um, be faced with in that latter part of our life financially, physically, cognitively. Um, we don't know what that's going to look like. So we have to have a plan A, B, and C loosely on where we can age and age well. Um, financially, I don't think people understand what the burden is financially on aging, especially if we need care, which it said before, 85% of people over 65 will need some form of care. I don't think people have any idea financially what that burden is, especially if you need care for years or decades with Alzheimer's and dementia and things of that nature. Um, millions, it can take millions of dollars. So we want to educate you on that and have advanced care um, decisions in all areas because let's let's go ahead and make a loose plan ahead of time because we don't want to get caught in a place where we get um, unfortunately a fall and be in a nursing home and have to move out of our house and it's all kind of a crisis. Better trained end-of-life care providers so they're calling for better trained end-of-life care providers, doula givers. We have to have the best trained and available. So it's not just that, I mean, these hospice workers are absolutely, they're amazing. They're amazing what they do. They just, again, because with the reimbursement, families are asking for more physical time with the professional to be 
teaching, to be in the home with them, to help them through that journey. So if they can't provide more time because of the reimbursement structure, we can have the non-medicals coming in and supporting them to be that person holding that space for them. Um, takes a burden off of the practitioner. It takes a burden, obviously, off the patient and family. And revamped policies and payment systems designed to support high-quality end-of-life care. So the last one, revamped policies and payment systems. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. You know, you hear every day things getting cut. I don't think that we are going to see a turnaround within the system um, anytime soon, if at all. So, so that's not going to keep us from making this happen. We have to think of alternative systems to complement the mainstream medical system to make a whole, to make it happen. It's exciting. All right, so if you have any questions, I'm going to answer some of the top ones that have come in for this subject matter. But if you have a question, we are on live today on the 14th of November, and you also will have access to this replay in our, we post those on the following Tuesday of every day on our sites for those who can't make it live. Um, but if you do have a live question, you may answer I mean, you may ask it in the chat box now, and I am going to bring that up, and then I'm going to answer some of the most common questions that are brought in by um, this topic. So, whoops, we're all over here. <clears throat> so, here we have it. Um, okay, so some of the top questions that will come in about the non-medical profession will be, you know, what is the difference between a doula giver, end-of-life doula, or a doula giver specialist? Um, let's start with what is the difference between a hospice nurse and a certified end-of-life doula giver? Well, the difference is really, if you want to get down to it, it's time and role. So the, the hospice nurse is a medical manager of the care of that end-of-life patient. She or he assesses that patient and teaches the loved ones, puts the care plan together, gets medical orders, medication orders, and then teaches the family. The model is that she or he is supposed to teach the family how to actually do the care. The certified end-of-life doula will be equally and highly trained in all end-of-life. However, they are not medical. That's not their title. They are the non-medical professional. So they will not be making medical orders. They will be reinforcing hospice teachings. They will be evaluating if the family understands um, how to care for that loved one, which again, we talked about the very short amount of time that people are on hospice, the high levels of stress that people come into hospice with, and the fact that um, the hospice uh, nurse is not able to physically be there for large amounts of time. And so the doula can be there. And so it's great that the doula can identify and then alert the hospice team that there's a change in presentation with the patient, um, which again will bring the hospice nurse back to reevaluate and to change and update the care plan, which is everything about quality of life on the daily. So if again, I'm a hospice nurse and there's a change in my um, patient's presentation, and I'm not aware of it until the next time that I make a visit, which might be a week long. Um, you know, it might be five to seven days until I come back there. That patient may have been in a place of low quality of life or suffering 
for days because I didn't know that there was a change in presentation. Families don't know what is happening. And a lot of times that fear blocks them from really being um, present. So we don't want people to suffer. We don't want that to happen. If I had a doula giver there who could then alert and let the hospice nurse know that, hi, I'm here with Mr. Miller. And there's an absolute change in his presentation today. I think you'd want to come back and, and do an evaluation. Um, that is all that we may need to make this a perfect match for non-medical and medical to work together to give the highest quality of care to that end-of-life patient and their family on this journey. You have to remember that we cannot do end-of-life again. We only have one opportunity to do it. We can't go back and do that again. So we have to do everything in our control ahead of time to make this the best situation for patients and families. If that end of life does not go well, the family will remember that forever. If that end of life does go well, the family will remember that forever. So this has so much to do with a positive end of life, but also that whole journey now of grief and bereavement. If you are aware, grief and bereavement is another huge area where people are suffering on a major level, holding on to guilt, regret having witnessed um, suffering for a loved one at the end of life, and they can't get over that. So a lot of the times when we do our trainings, it's wonderful because it does tend to bring some peace resolution um, to families who have been carrying weight on their, um, their shoulders and their heart because of an end of life that they have been just tortured by with grief and bereavement. So on so many levels, so many levels, just as human beings, just as being here in humanity together, knowing that we all go through this, to be able to support one another with as much kindness, compassion, and education to have it go well, that everyone can have an opportunity to have end of life go well, because it's 100% guaranteed that we're all going to be touched by it, no matter what religion, culture, socioeconomic status, each and every one of us We'll go through this with our family, our loved ones, our friends, and even ourselves. So to be able to share on a platform um, as human beings is something that we need to get back to and to do. So I'm very honored to be able to have a platform to be able to open that conversation up to you. So that is the difference between a doula giver, a certified end-of-life doula, doula giver, and the hospice nurse. What is the difference between a doula giver and a hospice volunteer? Hmm. Well, hospice volunteers are absolutely wonderful that they come forward to volunteer their time to, again, um, hope to make a difference in other people's journey. Because, again, we go back to the reimbursement structure. Because Medicare dictates the reimbursement structure um, they tell you exactly how much time and what you need to do or not do within the system on the visit with the end-of-life patient. Most hospice volunteers do visits once a week for an hour at a time. That's basically the majority of them. And during that period, they're not supposed to touch the patient or feed the patient or they, of course they don't do any um, evaluation of teaching or anything of that nature, none of that. They are lovely and they provide that presence for that hour. But one hour, once a week is not 
meeting the demand of what the patient and the family is asking for and what they need. So although they're absolutely wonderful, the volunteers, they are kept to strict adherence to what they can and cannot do and the time frame that they're there is, is very short. And that's again dictated from the Medicare reimbursement. Um, so many of the volunteers do become certified end-of-life doulas because that's what they originally wanted to. They tell us that that's really what I wanted to do when I started to volunteer and now they're able to have a way to do that. So that's absolutely lovely. Another question that comes in when people are hearing what the curriculum is for certified end-of-life doula and taking the training, sometimes they say, well, wait a second, isn't that what a hospice nurse does? Or wait a second, isn't that what a social worker does? And so absolutely correct that the end-of-life doula is a holistic practitioner and knows how to care for somebody at the end of life physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so there are many times that that doula will find themselves wearing the hat of a social worker. Somebody might be, you might be sitting with your patient for the day and all of a sudden that patient really has something on their heart that they want to share with you or they have an unresolved issue that they want to talk about or they have a regret that they want to work through and that really could be a social worker topic but the social worker isn't there and maybe the social worker isn't able to get there in this short time frame maybe this patient has a few days left of life and the social worker is not able to make a visit during that time. The beautiful thing is the doula can let the social worker know that this is something that came up with that patient, that they might like to schedule a visit with them. But if they're not available, which many times in that short time frame, and maybe even the patient just wants to talk about it right now, for some reason feels very comfortable in this space at this time to share something that's weighing their heart down, then with the doula givers there. And yes, it is extremely important to be able to provide that to that uh, patient, that space, to be able to do that. Um, what about the nursing? You know, just kind of teaching about the or reinforcing the disease process that that person has. And maybe they have something that is really affecting and obstructing their breathing, which can be extremely scary for patients. So just being able to reiterate and reinforce the teaching of pursed lip breathing or the position that you can sit in to allow the most um, expansion of your lungs. These are things that doula givers can do. Is that a nursing um, teaching? For sure. But it's also something that the, the nurse would teach the family and the patient how to do, and we're just reinforcing that. So you are correct if you say that the doula giver does um, things that the social worker, the nurse would do, and even the chaplain at times. You know, if somebody has a question about spirituality or, or they even are just wanting to talk about their faith. Again, we bring back the awareness to the hospice team that this is something that they uh, need to know about and would like to schedule a visit with their client, but maybe they don't have time to fit that in. And maybe something is coming up right now that's pressing that that person wants to share. So the doula giver is that person and does have education in the physical, the spiritual, and the emotional components to end of life, which is again, an incredible support system to mainstream medical. So as you can see, the non-medical professional will be the answer to filling the gaps in mainstream medical now and for the future decades to come. And it's beautiful to work together. It is gonna make the pressure on mainstream medical providers so much less, and it's gonna provide 
the care and the time that the patient and the family so very much need at the end of life. And not only the end of life, but for our aging population to be able to once again, bring the awareness of good holistic care to our aging population, and also to be able to provide that with doula givers. It's an honor. So thank you so very much, everyone, for being part of this edition of Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. We try and do a live Ask a Death Doula every week, either Thursday or Friday, both at 12 o'clock Eastern time. As you know, we have done it from different locations, depending on where we are today, New York City. Very chilly out there, so if you are on the East Coast, stay warm. If you have any questions, please email us at support at askadeathdoula.com. If you have any topics you would like covered in the Ask a Death Doula podcast, we are happy to accommodate that. Again, send in your questions and we will be happy to answer them live on the podcast. Um, and we're so glad that you are here. And again, it takes all of us to make the positive change in end of life moving forward. We are a global supportive community. So thanks everyone. I hope you have a fantastic day and I'll see you in the next day. Thanks for listening to another episode of Ask a Death Doula. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a raving review. Subscribe, share, and send your questions. See you in the next episode.